Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for real estate investors looking to protect their assets, save on taxes, and build their wealth with Clint Coons. Clint is an attorney, author, avid real estate investor, and featured instructor at Anderson's tax and asset protection events held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's up guys? It's Clint Coons here. And in this video, what I wanted to do is talk to you about self-storage investing. You know, there's a lot of people that tell you how much money you can make in self-storage. And I have to be frank, I'm also invested into it. It's a great asset class. But the key is, how do you get into it? That's the thing that challenged me at first. I didn't know how to get started in self-storage because it was this whole other animal. And it was really perplexing to me because I understand single family and I do multifamily. But self-storage, it just you kept eluding me. Finally, I hooked up with an individual, he became a client, and I found out when he when he start, when I started working with him, he is just killing it in self-storage. In fact, he is the CIO of Spartan Investment Group. They have a half billion under management, over 300 million square feet of actual self-storage. In fact, it impressed me so much when I started looking at the company and what they were doing, I actually invested in them by way of full disclosure. So I've made an investment into their self-storage. And I did this because I realized, hey, I'm gonna go to the experts. I just didn't have the time to do it. But if you're interested in self-storage, what I did is I asked Ryan if he could come on and spend a little time with me today to talk about what it takes to get started in self-storage so you can start collecting some of that mailbox money and putting yourself into a different asset class and hopefully creating the retirement plans or the financial future you've been looking for. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Clint. Hey, Great to be here. Perfect. Now, I know you know our time's limited because you're down there in Orlando and you're getting ready to take your kids to Disney World. So it was a big ask to, to get your wife to say yes. So don't mind just give, give us a little bit about your background and then let's jump into, you know, why is it, what attracted you to self-storage? Yeah, we love the fact that during the last four downturns in GDP, uh, it maintained really great occupancy and we also like the three E's, easy to own, easy to evict, easy to maintain. And we never have to do an eviction because the auction process uh, gives us the right to move a tenant out and we don't have the same restrictions that multifamily, single family investing do. And we never wanted to kick somebody out of their home. So we like that we don't have to deal with people in their homes, right? Um, we also like the fact that we're on month to month leases and we can raise rents every month, which can help keep up with inflation, especially in today's climate where inflation is probably double digits. And the last thing is just ease of maintenance and operations. You don't have, we have like 25,000 units and we have about maybe 25 toilets. So if you had that many multifamily units, you'd probably have 50,000 toilets. So we love the ease of operations, no countertops, cabinets, appliances, carpet, uh, things like that. And so uh, it was just a really attractive asset class when we looked at all the different types of asset classes uh, back in 2013. So if I'm going to take that and paraphrase that, what I'm hearing is like, you don't have to deal with the government. There's no landlord tenant laws that apply to you. You're pretty much free to do what you want to make sure that your business is always making money. And is that one of the main attractions for you guys when you've started this company? Ab absolutely. And the one clarification is there are state laws but as uh, my business partner always says, no one cares about grandma's dresser, right? So um, when the pandemic hit, you know, the government really wanted to protect people from being kicked out of their home, which made sense. But nobody cares about the extra stuff in a storage locker. So 
we don't go under the same lens or the, scru- the scrutiny of what the other asset class types get. So I, I really like that. You know, when we, when we went through the pandemic, you know, we didn't have any restrictions on who we could auction or raise rents or anything. We had none of that. So I wouldn't say that the government is completely out of it, but I would say they're not touching it like they do other types of real estate. Got it. Okay. So you, you, you're talking about the pandemic and, and, and about downturns and things like that. So just as an, just thinking about this as an asset class in someone's portfolio, if they're, they're looking to just get started in this, would you say then when the economy goes down, if we, we go into recession, is your business kind of insulated from that? And then, you know, when we come out of that and things are going strong, do you see, um, gains on both sides or, or do you take a hit in one versus the other? I, I don't know. Yeah. So I would say nothing, nothing out there is recession proof, but I would say that self-storage tends to be recession resistant, meaning that, you know, usually when people use self-storage, it's because they're experiencing some bad life event. They're getting divorced, they're relocating. They decided during the pandemic to pack up their stuff and move into an RV and travel the United States or they were living in an urban setting and they decided to live, move out to a tertiary market or out into the suburbs or a more rural market. Or, you know, like me, my family was growing and I wanted to expand my home and I needed self-storage while I had to move my stuff out while we were doing a home renovation. So I would say that self-storage is dependent on life events. And when disruptions happen in the economy, Self-storage is usually a beneficiary of those life events. And so when we had COVID, we had a lot, we had a, we had a global life event for a lot of people. Everybody went under, underwent a lot of changes in their lifestyle. One, one small story, I was standing in the airport in March of uh, 2020, right when the global pandemic was starting and really kind of taking grasp. Airports were emptied out and there was one person on my flight and I had to ask the person, hey, where are you going? You know, there's no one in the terminal. There's a there's a 200 seat airplane, and you're the only one on it. I've got to ask you, like, what what has making you travel right now? And she said, Well, my grandmother just passed away, and I'm going down to Florida to move her stuff into storage, and then just kind of sort through what we're going to do. So, and I, I it really stuck with me because it was like, you know, no matter what is happening, you're going to have storage events. And I think what what's great is everybody now it's a convenience. It's on every street corner. There's actually more self storages than all fast food chains combined. And so people know that self storage exists, and it's become commonplace in American society. So they know they can just go down the road to their to their local storage and use a locker, and it can make space. And one one last thing I wanted to really hammer on is what happened during the pandemic. Everybody started to work from home. Everybody was forced to stay at home. And now you have this house that you want to work out in, right? So you got the Pelotons, you've got the, the rowing machines, you've got the, uh, the mirror, right? And so where are you going to put that? Well, you got to clear out a room. You got to make space for those types of things. You also might have to make way for an office at home. And with the rising costs of housing, guess what? You've got to make room for your stuff and you've also got, want to keep your rent lower and so self storage is just a great convenience and a great option. So I would probably say from a downturn perspective that's um in recent time that's what's really helped it. And then obviously during good times people buy toys, people buy boats, people buy all kinds of stuff that they they can't fit in their garage. You know the statistic in storage is that 66% of Americans 
that use a self-storage also have a garage. So in good times and in bad, it's done pretty well. Wow. Okay. So why don't you tell us this? I'm curious because I, I haven't heard this before. Your story, your first deal, how'd you find it? How'd you acquire it? How'd it turn out? Yeah. So we found our first deal off market. So I would say that off market is a big deal for us. The best projects we've had, we've found off market. And so just like residential, we would letter thousands and thousands and thousands of self-storage owners and try to be unique in our approach, right? And so when we, our first self-storage, our first existing self-storage was in uh, Aspen. It was actually in Conifer, Colorado. And then we put it under contract in like 2016. We were actually under contract for over a year because of a, a zoning that we wanted to get approved before we actually purchased it. And we sent a letter to the owner. The owner uh, liked our letter and he called us up. He was an 85 or so old man and uh, also served in the military, similar to my business partner, Scott. So there was a bond there. And he uh, decided to sell the property to us. And it was really cool because he said, hey, actually, I will agree to sell this to you, but under one condition, I want to hold the note. I want to do seller financing because he didn't want to pay the capital gains. So he actually wanted the seller the carry back because of that. So that was really cool. We didn't even have to go to a bank and get a loan on it. Uh, and so we and so we said, well, what you know, what rate in terms, you know, what what's important to you on this note? And he said, well, I just want to make X amount per month. So we went back and you know studied an amortization table and figured out what was best for us. And we approached him and said, how about a four percent interest rate um, and a I think a twenty five year amortization, something like that. And uh, he loved it. So he held back the note. We bought our first self-storage facility. And uh, it was really cool. It, the project actually is in the mountains of Colorado. It's uh, called Aspen Park, Colorado. And literally at 8,500 feet elevation, we had to use dynamite. And we blew up the granite in the back of the property to build another 14,000 square feet. So it was 14,000 square feet existing. We added on 14,000 square feet. And the property uh, has been cash flowing to our investors well over 8% cash on cash um, paid monthly, which is really cool, 8% per annum. And uh, we've added a tremendous amount of value and equity to that deal over the last few years, uh, just from raising rents, from expanding the facility, and just operating it a little bit better. One last little thing. What's funny about the, the, the old mom and pops is they don't, he didn't have internet connected to the facility. So he had no revenue management. He had no online presence at all. He literally didn't connect that facility to the internet. Uh, so when we took over, it was uh, we streamlined things quite a bit. Wow. All right. Yeah. Well, it sounds easy, but you know, <laughs> let's be frank. You, you said something there. Oh, I have. We had it under contract. We had to do our due diligence. How do you know that? I mean, if I found a property I thought was going to be a self storage and I put it under contract. I wouldn't know what really what to look for. I mean, kind of you get a sense for how much money's coming in, but and then you said you you did a raise. It sounds like so you syndicated it. You just don't fall out of bed one day and say, "Yeah, I think you see that property. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a due diligence. I'm gonna have that property. I'm gonna syndicate it. I'm gonna buy it within six months." We studied self storage for three years before that wow. deal. Okay. So what did we you were, do? We were, what were yeah, you studying? So, Come on, tell us. <laughs> like they say, overnight success, uh, yeah. a 10-year overnight success story. So mm -hmm. no, when we, we decided to go into self-storage, you know, we didn't know much about the industry. So we went to every single trade show, uh, the ISS, the SSA. We went through seminars. We went through training tracks. 
we contacted the top operators in the United States and begged them for dinner appointments and to sit down with them and to learn from them. Uh, we found friends actually in the local Seattle area that own self-storage, and they were kind enough to show us how they uh, ran their operation. Uh, we did all we we traveled the country for about three years and did nothing but learn self storage. You know, so it's not something we just dove into. And that first deal took us like two years to find. Uh, so it, it was a lot of work. It wasn't you know it wasn't just like we just rolled and rolled out of bed one morning and, and found this self storage. Um, the due diligence that we do, uh, we actually share with everybody. So if your listeners want to go to Spartan-Investors.com. There's a rate where it says invest in our values. Right below that, we have a due diligence tracker. And so there is sev over 700 points. Um, that's all the things that we look for while we're under contract. Uh, some of the things that we do before we put it under contract, but that's kind of our comprehensive list. And you'll find that not everything applies to every situation. You know, If you're not doing an expansion, you may not have to do a geotechnical study, for example. So we, we share that with our, uh, you know, with our friends and uh, investors. That's kind of what you would do. And we had a little bit of experience. We were developing uh, ground up condos and houses in Washington, DC. So from an entitlement and development standpoint, we had uh, prior experience in different real estate asset classes. Got it. But then you funded it via a syndication. So you went, so that's a whole other component. Um, why would you go the syndication route if the guy's willing to own or finance? Yeah, so he he was willing to carry back. I think it was about sixty percent of okay. the total purchase price. So the other forty percent we syndicated, and we we invested in that project ourselves. Uh, but we wanted to open it up to our investors. We wanted to. We had been talking to our investors about how we're getting into self storage and educating them on why we like it and why they should be interested in it. And so we really wanted to get. We really wanted to bring the opportunity to our investors. And so every single project we've ever done, we've shared with our investors. And you know, we just we allow our investors to invest as little as fifty thousand into each of our deals, and uh, that's that's basically why we did it, and and it was uh, it's been really uh, great for them. All right, so then you you give me some color now as to how this comes about. So if I was considering going into self storage, first thing I've heard is you better educate yourself, spend some time to become familiar with that asset class, what it takes to find uh, or what it takes to run it to determine whether or not the numbers work. But the key, I think, also is years ago, you know, you, you probably recall that that warehouse that that Toby and I, my partner Toby and I purchased, and we thought we would turn it into a self-storage facility. So, oh, this is great. We're going to make this self-storage. And you said, yeah, I don't know if I would do that if I were you. So if I'm an investor and, and I want to get into this, what are some of the just the demographics of the areas or where should I look to find some opportunities? The easiest thing that you can do is check the occupancy surrounding your property. And you usually want to do it within a five to 10 minute drive time and just see how the other operators are, see how full they are. You know, go, go to one of their locations and ask, hey, I want to rent a unit and uh, I, I want to rent a 10 by 10 and, and see if they have any availability. And so go to every single property check the occupancy at every single property. You could call as well and just see how your uh, competitors compare occupancy-wise to the subject property. And if everybody's full and per average unit size, everybody's below, uh, you know, priced above your subject site, that might be able to prove a business plan that allows you to raise rents. And then secondly, I always encourage people to do a feasibility study, you know, call up, 
like a Bob Copper or a Jay Graham or somebody who in the industry does third-party feasibility studies and ask them to say, hey, can you do a desktop study for me and tell me if this is a good uh, expansion opportunity or ground up if you're building a new one, uh, you know, just to get a pulse on the the, the investment. So I, I would probably say if you're looking at a property, that would be the first couple things I would do. If you don't know how to underwrite, I would make sure that you you hire someone that knows how to underwrite or you would you learn that process. You know, there's a lot, Clint, be, to, to be honest. I mean, like when you guys brought us that deal, you guys are very sophisticated. You guys have hundreds, if not thousands of doors in your portfolio. And, and, your, and then obviously in your client's portfolio, it's massive, probably millions. So you just really, it's really niche. It's not hard. It's just different. And so there's a lot of little nuances that you want to educate yourself on and know what you're looking for and not completely rely on what the broker might be telling you or even the seller in that case. So a lot of things, uh, you know, to look for as far as demand, occupancy, underwriting, you know, what your business plan is going to be and how you're going to actually make yield on that investment. Okay. So for those that don't understand, when you say underwriting, what does that entail? (laughs) Yeah, so you want to you want to first do you want to do four things. You want to figure out what's your unit mix. How many 5 by 5s how many 10 by 10s how many 10 by 15s 10 by 20s etc. And you can do it on a spreadsheet. You have a tab on your spreadsheet and you run your unit mix, okay? So now you know what units you have, what unit sizes you have. And then you want to input what the rents are for those unit sizes. So what is the seller collecting in those unit types, right? Then you want to go into your assumptions on revenue and expenses, and then get your property tax, uh, you know, get your property tax expenses down, talk to an insurance agent, see what the new insurance is going to be for coverage, specifically one that specializes in self-storage. You don't want to just call any insurance broker. You want one that actually specializes in storage. So that's your revenue and expenses. And I always say the five things I look at at revenue and expenses is how much revenue? Uh, what's your expense to income gross ratio? So if you're making a dollar, how much are you expending to make that dollar? So I, I want to see at least 40%, um, if not more. Otherwise, it's too light. I always look at the property taxes, you know, because remember, when you buy that property, you're going to get reassessed at a higher rate. Mm-hmm. And so your property taxes are going to increase when you buy it. So you have to account for that in your financial underwriting, your projections for how you're going to do your business plan. And then insurance, make sure you're well you're well insured. Uh, and so you have your unit mix. And then you can say, okay, this is what the seller is currently collecting on average for each unit mix type. Then go to the market and say, okay, what's the average market getting on their unit mix type? And you might find that, hey, we're charging, you know, my seller is charging $100 on the average for a specific unit. And the market's charging $130 for that same unit. And those properties are in worse condition than the seller's. So you might look and then, and hey, everybody's full. That might give you an opportunity to raise rents, right? Um, And then that might show you how you can make this opportunity run a little bit better. And of course, I'm assuming you're a better operator. You know how to do marketing and you know how to answer the phone and you know how to run a call center and, you know, all the things that go into self-storage. So that's what I would map out in your underwriting. You know, what's your unit mix? What are your revenue assumptions? What are your expenses? And make sure that it produces uh, what you're setting out and your return expectations overall on that investment. You know, if you want to make a 15% return or something like that, you want to make sure that you're getting those things. So are there operators out there that would 
you know, handle the the management of the, of the units? Or can you? Find oh, absolutely. People? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, um, you know, you guys all, you know, your listeners, and you probably heard of the company, big company called Public Storage. They're the largest operator and owner in the world. Uh, they'll do property management. So the REITs will do property management for you. The Extra Space, Cube Smart, StoreQuest, Public Storage, etc. All those operators will do third party management. And then there's a lot of more regional or smaller operators that will run your property. But, you know, here's the thing. You just want to be careful because if the property is too small, you might have a minimum property management that's required that might wipe out all your prop- your profits, right? I mean, the property management has a minimum that they want to make on your inv- on your property and your property may not produce enough revenue to justify it. And then just another caution is just, uh, you know, that the REITs are good, but remember, they're not motivated like you're motivated, right? There's, there might be a little bit of an ince- incentive misalignment because they care about a percentage of gross revenue. You care about the net profit, right? So, uh, you know, there might be a misalignment there. So you just really have to make sure that you're partnering with the right property management company, but they exist and they're out there, um, you know, and you can find the right one or you can try to do it yourself. Um, and that's, uh, that's a whole nother thing. So, <laughs> well, is there a minimum size someone should look for when they're evaluating self storage? Yeah, it depends on their, you know, what their price thresholds are and what their ex- expectations are. But if you want to justify third party property management, I would look for facilities that have a $200,000 a year or greater gross revenue. Um, that's kind of the sweet spot for that. Because uh, property management companies are going to want to charge minimally probably $2,500 a month. Uh, to to consider your property, so that's quite an expense, um, and you know, and, it, and then it goes up from there based on a percentage of gross revenue. Usually, it's right around six percent is what the property management uh, charges. Got it. What are some things that you should just you see it? You should absolutely avoid turn around and walk and not do anything. I mean, I'm sure you come across stuff like that, and you know by now. Hey, I'm not even going to bother with that property. Uh, you know, we don't, we kind of stay away from flood zones. Um, you know, but some people might not mind that, that that's just our preference. Uh, we like to, uh, we look at demand. I mean, income growth is and job growth and our ability to raise, uh, revenue and have rent growth. That's really the, that is the thing that is making investment successful. You want a rising market, a good market that produces that, you know, if you're a mom and pop and you're thinking about what, buying one self storage and it's like 30 units and you think you're just going to kind of put a revenue management system in place and, and hire a third party call center, you're going to A, that's going to erode most of your income. And then if you try to run it yourself, you're basically kind of buying yourself a job. So I we avoid a smaller property. We want, we want something that's 40,000 typically square feet or greater or something that produces, again, at least 200,000, if not more gross income, I think we're up to like 400,000 now is kind of our cutoff uh, so that you can get the benefit of hiring somebody to run that property, or you can get the benefit of hiring an external property management company, et cetera. I think that just makes it, you know, if you're really trying to be passive, you want to avoid the really small properties. If you're looking for kind of something that you don't want to run on your own and you want to be able to outsource, uh, that's a big thing. I would also, you got to look at your demand study. You got to see if there's other pipeline facilities in your market. If there's somebody building right down the street, 100,000 units or 100,000 square feet, guess what? You might have a really bad time raising your rents, 
uh, producing more income, et cetera, because you're going to be fighting against somebody who's trying to lease up their property. So getting that market study and understanding like building permits in the pipeline, who your competitors are, that's a really, really big thing. So we found really, really great deals. And then we show up in the market and we start doing our boots on the ground research. And then it's like, oh, U-Haul is building a 150,000 square foot facility down the street. Yeah, I think you know that that absorbs all the any excess demand and then it makes a a negative oversaturated market so that would probably be the biggest thing uh that turns us off on a regular basis and then really just price you know a lot of these facilities are overpriced that's why we look heavily off market because it's just uh once it gets to the market there's a lot of bidding wars and it's you know overpricing is a big deal and you know obviously if it's overpriced even if there is a rent raise potential you can be upside down pretty quickly you, you said something that I, I picked up on. I think the, the people that are watching this, listening to it, should, should, should have heard, is that you don't want to buy yourself a job. My sister-in-law, she's a realtor over in Idaho and, in the Coeur d'Alene area, and, and she came to me about two years ago with a self-storage opportunity. It was uh, about a seven cap, and uh, I was bringing in 35000 bucks a year. And she goes, look at this great opportunity. And I said, yeah, but they're owner operators. And so that's not going to work for me because I live over in Gig Harbor and that's all the way. So I have to hire somebody. So you really, I'm looking at a two cap, right? Or a three cap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's key. That is so true because people are like, wow, you guys are buying these at like a five cap, you know, mm -hmm. how are you making that work? And, you know, there, there, that's a really loaded question, but you know, some people might say, well, look at this eight cap I found in the middle of New Mexico. It's like, yeah, okay. But you go there one time and now it's a negative cap Correct. because what's your time worth? Right. And yep. I think that's, that's huge. Right. And to think that you're never going to go there, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe you can figure that out, but, uh, we've done this, you know, 50 plus 60 plus times. Now you need to have boots on the ground. You need to have an understanding of your asset and uh, and how it operates. So especially for your first one, um, if you're just thinking about doing one, I would look for something that can justify uh, property management or uh, uh, some kind of a part, at least part time labor to go by. You know, we we fully automate all of our properties and have a call center and you can book online and you can get gate codes and lock codes and all that to get in. But you still need somebody to sweep those units out to go buy the property. So you're you're always relying on somebody going there, no matter what. Something's going to break, etc. So to think that well, I'm just going to fully automate it, like I heard you can do. We well, we do that anyway. We just we like to have stuff where you can still have a manager go by at least every once in a while and check up on the place. How about building it from the ground up? Is that worth it? Absolutely. You know, it's funny. Um, if, if I could choose what I would only look at as I would only do ground ups, I, I love ground up development, but the stakes are much, much higher. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you do ground up development, I mean, there's a bigger payoff, uh, un you know, could be a bigger payoff, uh, but the stakes are much higher. There's, there's a lot of risk in ground up development. And if you're not looking at it with a, you know, sophistication of, entitlement challenges, zoning, you know, costs of permits, what the uh, fire code is and what you're going to be required to do for sprinklers or just, you know, what the design review elements might be. Um, you know, you might be in for a, a pretty full-time job trying to get your site approved. Um, and then once you build your site, you know, that's great. You're, you're open and you're empty. 
So I always tell people, you know, you could build this big, beautiful $8 million facility. Now you have an $8 million uh, facility with no tenants in it. So you better have done your homework many, many years ago on market study and market demand because you're staring down the barrel of a big loan with no revenue, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot of risk in it, but there's a big payoff. If, if you can find a, a site that you can entitle and build at a great cost and a market that's underserved, uh, that could be a really great thing. It could be, you know, we've made the most amount of equity in our portfolio from our ground ups uh, on it for, for pound for pound, uh, but it came with a lot of work. Uh, so just know that, you know, you, you might want to go to I, ISS has a development track you can take, you know, I would tour as many as you can, I would talk to people who built these before, um, the lending environments more challenging, etc, on ground up development. And here's the thing about ground up development that I just want to throw out there. It's hard to make them pencil now, because construction costs are up. So, you know, I, I was just at the best ever conference, and somebody came up to me and said, Hey, we have this site in Utah, and I want to do a ground up development. And I said, well, what are the rents per square foot on an annual basis? And they said eight to $10. And I said, don't do it. We don't look at anything that isn't $15 a square foot per year or higher. It's just it's hard because construction costs are up. And it's and it's not based on a certain market. I mean, it's just more expensive for metal. It's more expensive for it's harder to find labor and materials. So You've got to have, you know, at least $15 annual rents. You know, the only ground up construction we're doing right now is actually $25 rents. Uh, and that's just out of Port outside of Portland. So that that's kind of uh, my disclaimer on ground up, but I love ground up developments. They're great. Wow. Yeah, because I mean, that, that I've heard people talk about that uh, as a possibility. But the other thing I hear a lot is buying self-storage and, hey, there's such demand for RV parking boat storage, and I'm just going to kill it by leasing out space to people that have these types of you know vehicles. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So there is so much demand for RV and boat storage, and here's why. Land is too expensive to justify boat and RV storage. And, you know, typically... You know, and I'm making a generalization. There's there's definitely edge cases in certain markets where you can build a boat storage and make a killing, right? But generally, you know, if you think about what's required for an RV stall or a boat stall, it's like 12 by 50 feet. If you have one of those big Class A RVs, you're really only going to collect in the best case scenario maybe two three hundred dollars a month, and that's a lot of square footage that you're absorbing on that property to collect two or three hundred dollars a month. If you think about it, a 10 by 10 in that same market could go for as much as $200 or $150 a month. So think about how many 10 by 10s you can put on a 12 by 50 uh, space, right? So the rent per square foot is typically, and I'm, again, I'm using just really rough wet wags, is about half. So if you can build and there's demand for storage, it always makes more sense to build the storage and not do the RV parking. Now, having said that, we have thousands and thousands of boat and RV parking stalls in our portfolio. And the reason why they're there is because we can't justify building additional units there because the rents aren't high enough, right? So we have this excess land and it works out great. We can put RVs and boats there and it's just you know ancillary revenue that we wouldn't have otherwise received and it costs us nothing to do it, right? So that's usually where it makes sense and not in from a standpoint of, you know, I'm going to just build boat and RV storage, you know, your, your cost of the land are probably going to be really high and your cost to, you know, build and grade 
maybe put in canopies if you're going to do that. Or it's really challenging to get that done. So you're, you're going to have a, a tough time making it pencil, but you might make it pencil in some markets. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, we had that conversation a while back. Intuitively, I thought, well, this, you'd make a ton of money with all the boats and RVs out there. And then when you put it in that context, I realized, yeah, that's stupid. Just shut up, Clint. <laughs> Leave it to the experts. <laughs> like I said, it could, it could work. I'm not saying it wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to make a broad statement about it. But generally, it's like, if you can build storage, just build as much storage as possible. Correct. So. Well, hey, man, I know you've got things to do down there. I appreciate you taking some time out of your family time to come on here. Um, so your company, just so everyone knows, as I said, I've invested with Spartan on, on a few of their deals. And they're experts at what they do. They, they know it. I've, I've been actually a little bit on the inside and seeing what's been going on. So if you're thinking about getting into self-storage, which after listening to this, you're thinking, oh, I don't even want to do it on my own. I want to work with a, an operator that has a proven track record and has the knowledge on how to find these deals. You may want to reach out and uh, contact them. And so I'm going to put your information in the show notes. Actually, I'm going to put down the stuff you were talking about, ISS and those other names you mentioned how people can get a hold of them if they want to go in on their do it themselves. So it's all going to be there. But is there anything in particular you want to tell people right here to close it out uh, about self-storage or about working with Spartan that uh, you think they, should, they, they need to know? No, I, I would just say, uh, you know, check out our education. We put a lot of stuff out there on the internet for free. Uh, we talk about how we put deals together. We have our webinars on our YouTube channel. We have a learn page on our website. And we, we share, you know, we don't have like a mastermind or anything. We just kind of share with the world what we do. And I think you can learn a lot uh, from that. And uh, you also learn a lot from being in our projects. You know, when we first got into the space, we, our first storage deal, we invested with another operator and we learned a ton because we put our money in and now you're paying attention because you've got money on the line, right? Uh, so we, you know, we really dug into the financials and we dug into how the operator did it. And so I think that, you know, kind of investing in the space, uh, whether it be passive or active, definitely passive kind of gives you that front row seat to the action without actually having to jump up on stage and, you know, run around and fix things. So, you know, ease into it. I would say, like I said, we, we spent a lot of time getting educated. Um, and then we took action by investing in it with another operator. And then the rest is history. You know, we really have grown quite a bit since then. So it's a great way to kind of get started in the space. One last question. You just, it just came to mind. So let's assume that I found what I thought might be a really good deal off market. If I brought that to you, would there be a way where you do you ever do that? You partner with someone that, that finds it. I realize I have to give up a lot to get that expertise, but to show me what needs to be done. Is yeah, you guys absolutely. even do that anymore? Yeah, we wouldn't JV. We wouldn't JV per se. Um, just mostly from a uh, the standpoint of, you know, we do our, all the property management. We have our own construction company. We, have our own asset managers. We have a team of over a hundred people now. So we really don't need someone to kind of help us. Um, but you would learn a lot. And I would say that, um, you know, by selling a deal to us, or if you want to get take an assignment for it, we would definitely do that. Um, and if you wanted to maybe contribute some of that back into the deal, um, you know, not required, but and, and be passive and learn about how we reposition the property, uh, we would be more than happy to um, help the investor along the way uh, you know, really kind of learn how we put it together. And so the next time you can decide, oh, I'm going to flip it to Spartan or, you know, maybe I'm going to try this one on my own, you know, and I think you can learn a lot from that. Yeah. And that's what I really like about what, what you're all doing is you have the Anderson approach, which is just pull back the curtain, show everyone what it is you're doing, create your own competitors. If you, if, if you want to look at it that way, 
but you sure. know you're so good at what you do that um, it's hard for people to 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 really copy where you're at at this point in time. But there's plenty of room in the the space. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, again, thanks for being on. I appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy your time down there at Disney World. All right, thanks, Clint. All thanks right. for having. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.